Good morning, everybody. It's really good to be with you, uh, both here and in person and online. And uh, we're really thankful just to be able to, like, come <laughs> and be with you in this time. Cindy and I came over about a month ago, actually, to the UK. We've been traveling around the UK. Uh, before, just before we came here to Newcastle, we were in Ireland, where we visited five different vineyard churches over there. And uh, that was a good time. So this morning, I'd like to begin by, I'd like to take you back in history a little bit. I'd I want to tell you a story. It goes back 300 years ago. There were a group of believers, really a scattered group of believers, in what would now be a part of Germany. Uh, this was before Germany coalesced as a, as a, you know, a separate nation. And these believers were being persecuted because they weren't Catholic. And um, at that particular point in time, if you had a different faith than the ruler of your, wherever you were living, uh, that would be, you, they could put you in prison and other kinds of things. So they were having a tough time, but there was a man named Count Zinzendorf. He was a German count, and he controlled an area called... Um, uh, Moravia, and he invited uh, these different believers from around that part of Germany to come to his part, and he said, I'll give you some land, and you can build a new city, and you can have complete freedom of religion there, um, and so they did. He gave them the land, and they came, and they built this place called Hernhut, and they, you know, built a church, and started gathering together to worship God and hear the preaching of the word. And it wasn't long before they discovered that they had other things they disagreed about. Um, as sometimes happens with Christians, they began to bicker and disagree over things like exactly how you did communion and who could have communion and you know, what order you did things on Sunday morning, and perhaps a little more substantive than our modern equivalent of bickering over wearing a piece of cloth, but not too distant from that. And it wasn't long before they started to polarize. I mean, they got down to calling each other sons of the devil <laughs> and so forth. Um, and, and so... The count, hearing about all of this, was very upset because this is not what he bargained for. And you have to remember, the, the count was not a pastor. He was a, he was a politician. You know, he got to be a count by, you know, being friends with the king. And anyway, he finally came and he spent several weeks, basically, as they wrote about it later, rebuking them for their selfishness and their pride which probably is what underlines most of our disagreements, our selfishness and our pride. And so some of them started gathering together at night to pray that God would deliver them, that God would do something to get them out of this mess they were in and to set them free from their selfishness and their pride. And then on Sunday morning, August 13th, 1727, so just shy of 300 years ago, 
something amazing happened. As they were gathered together and as they were singing their worship song, the Spirit of God was poured out upon them. And it was so strong, the people leading the worship could no longer sing. And they were falling to their knees, and some of them were falling down flat on the, in front of everybody and shaking. And very quickly, this spread to the whole rest of the group so that the power of God rested on them so powerfully that people were crying out and shaking and crying and, and repenting in all kinds of ways. And here, here is an interesting, um, like a letter that somebody wrote about what happened at the time. It's been translated, of course, from German into English, but it's still very powerful as they describe in their own words what happened to them. It said, Verily the 13th of August, 1727, was a day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were all under the cloud of our fathers, baptized with their spirit. The Holy Ghost came upon us, and in those days, great signs and wonders took place in our midst. From that time, scarcely a day has passed, but what we beheld is almighty workings amongst us. A great hunger after the word of God took possession of us so that we had to have three services every day. Namely, 5 in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, and 9 at night, because they all still had jobs. So those of you praying for revival, consider. <laughs> yeah, they, they were so hungry for God, they just like had to get more. They couldn't get enough and had to meet three times a day. We struggled to get people to come three times a month. Hmm. Anyway, he goes on, he says, everyone desired above everything else that the Holy Spirit might have full control. Yeah, you got that? We desired above everything else that the Holy Spirit might have full control. He says, self-love and self-will, as well as all disobedience, disappeared, and an overwhelming flood of grace swept us all out into the great ocean of divine love. That should give you chills. You know, great flood of grace swept them into the great ocean of divine love. And of course, when God comes like that, that's what happens. We experience his grace, his love. Another guy wrote, says, we left the house of God that day hardly knowing whether we belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven. It was a wonderful thing. And you know, that's what kingdom life is all about. You know, we, we talk about the coming of the kingdom, the breaking in of this life of God, this future realm when God is so present on the earth, when God's will is done on earth as in heaven. And that's just a little taste of what it might look like. Now their experience with the Spirit didn't end that day though. That's not where it stopped. It wasn't like a one day thing. As he said, it, they were seeing signs and wonders every day and they started a prayer meeting that was 24 hours a day. So they prayed around the clock 
and they all took turns praying for an hour so that they would pray around the clock. And uh, they, I, I, I've heard that they actually had a circle in the room that they would like walk around as they were praying and that you can actually go there now and see the, the, the basically a, a big you know, rut, you know, like it, they've worn away the dirt so much um, that you can actually see it because that prayer meeting didn't stop for a hundred years. A hundred years they continued praying 24 hours a day and as they would gather to pray the Spirit of God would continue to come on them. He would come on them in great power and he would speak to them and one of the things that happened was he began to speak to them about the forgotten people of the world. You know, it's the nature of the Spirit, which of course is also the same with Jesus, that there's this pull to always leave the 99 and go find the one that's lost. And so God began to speak to them about the forgotten people of the world. And the first ones he brought to their mind, brought to their attention, were the African slaves on the sugar plantations in the Caribbean. And I don't know if you know, if you've studied much about that, but the conditions were absolutely horrific. Um, the life expectancy was incredibly short. People did not live long under those conditions. And uh, they felt like we need to go and tell those people about the love of God. And the sugar plantation owners did not think this was a good idea. Because of course they understood if those people come to Jesus, they will, have, they will know who they are. <laughs> and they will no longer think like slaves. And, and that will be a problem for a plantation owner. So they did not want them to come. And so two of the brothers from the Moravians said, if you don't let us come, we will sell ourselves into slavery and come as slaves. Whereupon I think they, they backed down at that point. They were ready to sell themselves into slavery. They backed down. So the two went and then others followed. I think they had maybe as many as 20, 30, 40 ended up going to the sugar plantations of whom less than five returned alive. Then the Lord began speaking to them about the indigenous peoples of North America. In particular, they were focused on the, the Chickasaw and the uh, Cherokee people that were living in the southeastern area of what's now the United States. And interestingly, on the boat, on the way over there, on one of their many trips across, they happened to be on the same boat with a young man named John Wesley. And the boat ran into uh, a, a really horrific storm that even had the sailors uh, crying out in fear. And the Moravians were unmoved. They were the only people on the boat that were not afraid. And this struck Wesley in a powerful way and ultimately led to his own kind of experience with God, almost like a conversion experience with God, which led to the founding of the Methodist movement, which built this building and left it to you. <laughs> so I, we, we actually have a personal connection here back to the Moravian people. And then the Lord began speaking to them about 
the people living in Africa and about the Muslims and just about every direction you could go, they began sending people out for a century to every part of the globe as God spoke to them. Meanwhile, others of them stayed in Herrenhut and kept the prayer meeting going. That is real kingdom story. You know, and the problem, of course, is that so often when we experience the Spirit's power, it becomes like a one-time experience and then nothing much comes of it. The, 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 the rest of it doesn't happen. We seem to lose it or lose our awareness of it over time. You know, it seems like it's so easy for the church to just slide back into relying on human effort. And then, of course, we all get apathetic. That hunger of God that drove them to need to go to church three times a day doesn't seem to be much a part of our experience. That tenderness towards God and towards one another gets lost. And why is that? And I think part of the problem is that we don't realize that we have to continually, over and over and over, choose to give the Holy Spirit full control over our lives. Remember, that's what they said. They were striving to give him full control over our lives. And you know, our problem is we always try to get control ourselves, don't we? Like, we want to be in control. You know, God and I have most of our arguments about that issue when I don't think he's doing what he should be doing. <laughs> you have arguments with God, don't you? <laughs> and so, you know, we keep trying to pull back control. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That means it's really a journey that you're going on with the Spirit. It's not meant to be just a beginning. It's meant to be a journey. And you have to keep in step with Him through the whole thing. You have to keep walking with Him. It's not enough to have had an experience once. It's not enough to have a legacy like we do in the vineyard, but you have to actually keep daily choosing to give him full control. So how do we do that? Well, number one, give your life, your ministry, your church, your career, your family back to God. The Moravians gave everything over to God, willing to sacrifice everything they had to follow the lead of the Spirit, even if it took them to the sugar plantations and a very short life. You know, uh, 35 years ago or so, it was January 1985, the Spirit was poured out on our little church. We had about the same number of people as we've got in this room today. We weren't a lot of us, but the power of God visited us in a wonderful way, very much like the Moravians. And it was a wonderful thing. And it was, at first we were, it was so powerful, we were afraid. Like, have we ruined our church? <laughs> you know, is this, could this be God, something this powerful? But then people started repenting of their sins and started getting things right between each other. We thought, well, that's not the devil. <laughs> and, and it was glorious. In fact, you know, God began speaking to us speaking to us about our, you know, the things that 
needed to be confessed and repented of that we'd never even thought of, actually. And it was like floating in a sea of God's mercy. It was wonderful. And we were in that time and the leaders were gathered together and there was a prophetic word that came out and it basically went like this. God said, okay, you've got the revival you've been praying for, but if you want it to last, you're gonna have to give the church back to me. And you guys, namely me and my partners, have been running this church only allowing anything that you were already comfortable with ahead of time. But if you want this to keep going, you have to give up control and give it back to me. Now that was a big problem for me. And it's the same problem we all face when we get to this point, when God's challenging us to turn control of something over to him. My problem was this, I started that church so I could have a church I could stand going to. You know, I started that church for me. Not for everybody else, I started for me. I wanted to have a church where we worshiped with guitars, which was hard to find in 1976, where we stopped wearing suits and ties on Sunday morning. I didn't really care that much what the women did, but I wanted to get rid of the ties. And where we had small groups. And I thought, if I give the church back to God, what if he changes it and I don't like it? That's our question, isn't it? Sort of like we're going to, when, when it comes down to, am I going to really put God in control? It's going to be, what if I don't like it? Because he wasn't saying what he was going to do ahead of time. It was just, I want you to sign the blank check and I'll fill it in. And I really struggled. I'm sitting there in the meeting thinking, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. But I couldn't for the life of me figure out how I was going to say to Jesus, no, I'm keeping your church for myself. So kind of through gritted teeth, it was like, okay, I'm giving this church back to you and then kind of wait and see what happened. Well, first he started convicting me of things and people I needed to repent of. I guess I should have seen that coming. So there were several Sundays I was standing in front of the church repenting of various things. And then, then he started changing our leadership structure. Then he started changing the way we did worship. Then he started changing the way we did our small groups. At the end of a year, I told my father, I don't think he liked our church very much because we gave the church back to him and he changed everything. But it was better. It was all better. It was better and, it, and the work of God kept going. You know, in giving it all back to God, we cease living for ourselves and begin living only for him and in him. And when that happens, we become unshakable. You know, it doesn't matter whether we can't predict next week then because it's all in his hands. You know, when we give it all back to God, we no longer need to live in anxiety about the future because our future's in his hands and otherwise we have no future. It's all him and no us when we give it all back to him. So that's the first thing, you gotta give it back to him. Second thing, you have to wait. You have to wait on God to do things. 
You know, waiting is always involved in the coming of the Spirit. They waited. They were praying and waiting for that day to come. You know, our church prayed for revival for three years and nothing happened. But we were waiting. And we were looking. And eventually the waiting paid off. Waiting means we have to live in dependence upon God. We wait for him to move. We don't just rush in and do what we think is best. We kind of take a stance of, Father, what are you doing? Or, Father, may I? <laughs> Asking for permission. John 5, Jesus said, Verily I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And if that's true, how much more is it true for us? We can really do nothing by ourselves anyway, except what he's doing. So the name of the game is dependence on him, to wait upon him and do what he's doing. And when we wait, good things come. Now, when we started, we were all a bunch of university students. Back in 1976, we'd all either in university or just out of university. Um, nobody had any kids, but you know how it goes. You know, they all find each other and they get married and pretty soon the kids turn up. And so then we thought, well, we, we need to have a ministry to kids. So we, we said, well, there's this guy, Dave. He's in seminary. He wants to become a pastor and he needs a job. Let's just ask him to do the kids. So we said, Dave, we'll pay you a part-time salary and, and you can do the kids. So he did the kids for six months and then he came back and said, in six months I'm quitting. I don't think I'm called to the kids. In fact, I'm not, I don't think I'm called to be a pastor at all. I'm leaving seminary and I'm going to become a counselor instead. And then I realized, oh, like we were just like sticking somebody in like they were a warm body that they could fit what we need is somebody who's called to our children, who's actually called to them. So then we started to pray and wait. And the months started ticking by, and I started getting more and more desperate. Pretty soon, I'm spending Sunday afternoons, you know, lying on the floor crying out to God, God, help, because the deadline's coming, and there's an awful lot of kids down there now. <laughs> what are we going to do? And... Nothing was happening. And then, when I went to this, these people's house, they were having a bunch of people over for um, a gathering, uh, soup and sandwiches kind of a thing on a Sunday after church. And there were about like 30, 40 people there. And somebody said, I know what we can do. Let's go around the room and everybody tell what their dream for their life is that they've never told anybody. My initial thought was, oh, that's going to be really hokey, and nobody will tell the truth. But it wasn't my party, so off it went, and they started going around the room. And then we came to this woman named Eloise, Eloise McKittrick. She was an African-American woman. We didn't have many African-Americans then. We have a lot now. But at that time, we didn't have very many. And she was quite an unusual woman. She worked... Uh, for a Fortune 500 company. She was actually a vice president, had a PhD. She had not one, but like three or five, somewhere between three and five secretaries that personally worked for her. She got picked up in a limousine for her commute to work every day. 
and back home. She was driving, you know, the latest luxury car. I think it was a Mercedes. Um, she was like living the successful life. And it gets to her and she says, my dream for my life is I'd like to work for Steve. And I think it has something to do with children. My eyes about popped out of my head. I thought, did I just hear what I just heard? Like, I can't believe that. And nobody else in the room knew that, that I'd even been praying for this. And I'm like, just about having a heart attack. Could God be that good to our kids? And then I started thinking, okay, now the ball's in my court. And I needed to like tell her we're actually looking for somebody. And then I started thinking about the salary package we were going to offer. And the no limousine to pick you up. <laughs> and no secretaries to help you. And I thought, I can't do it. I can't make that big of an ass to ask somebody to walk away from that much. And so I'm praying and more weeks go by and I'm really struggling now because I think it, maybe it's supposed to be her but I can't figure out how to get there. And finally, one Sunday I said, I can't tell her, God, I just can't. If you want her to be our children's pastor, you're gonna just have to tell her yourself. <laughs> and seven seconds later or so, like almost immediately, the phone rings. Now, this is old-style phones. This is, this is before we had these things, you know. But the phone rings, and it's her. And she says, I've had two dreams every night this week, and I felt like God said, you need to tell them to Steve. <clears throat> so let's see if you can interpret the dreams. Here's the first one. There was an airplane that needed to take off from Chicago. That's where we are. We're in Chicago. But it had a missing part. So the, the airplane taxied down the highway several hundred miles to her parents' home in Kentucky to get the missing part so it can get off the ground. Duh. That was pretty obvious. And the second one, even more so. Second one, Jesus takes her into the basement of her grandmother's house and it's filled with children. And he says, you're to pray over these. And I just said to her, you don't know, but we've been praying for six months for God to call somebody to be our children's pastor. And she started screaming on the other end of the phone. And sure enough, she walked away, as it were, like kind of like Moses, walking away from the treasures of Egypt and served as our children's pastor for over 25 years. I mean, she's retired now, but really raised up a whole generation of kids in our church. And several of them became leaders in churches and church planters that came up underneath her influence. All of which is to say, when you wait on God, when you wait for him to do the thing and walk in dependence on him instead of just doing it yourself, great things happen. Better things happen. So we've got to give it all back to him, then we've got to wait on God and then you got to keep saying yes. You got to take the risks. 
For the Moravians, that meant like getting on the boats. It meant going to the sugar plantation, going to the Cherokee people. Keep saying yes. You know, uh, <clears throat> back in the, it must have been uh, mid 80s, late 80s, just around the time we were coming into the vineyard. I used to, being a much younger person at that point in time, I used to go and hang out at the Christian CU at the local university. And I would sit there and I would figure out who the leaders of the CU were, and then I would become their friend and meet with them and mentor them. They would then come to my church and bring all the rest of the students. This was my church planning strategy. And so one night I'm there, I'm sitting in the back, and this guy comes in and he sits down next to me and he's sick. He's really sick. Like he's got the worst cold you've ever seen. Like he's sweating, he's red, he's dripping, he's blowing his nose and coughing and, and it's just like, why are you even here? Like he's so miserable. It's, it's sort of like, why are you here? Why are you not in bed? Why are you sitting right next to me? God said, pray for him. So I just said, okay. I said, uh, can I pray for you? And he kind of gave me a funny look, but said, yeah, okay. And so I prayed for him. And once you know it, the guy was instantly, completely, 100% healed. Like all his symptoms went away within like 30 seconds. It's the only cold in 35 years that I've seen healed. I've seen more cancers healed than colds. But this guy gets healed of his cold. And it turned out he was a Muslim background guy from Turkey who was an exchange student. Well, he ends up, of course, after he gets healed, he wanted to know, like, where did this come from? I tell him about Jesus. He, he becomes a believer. Then he finds a, another, a woman that's from Turkey, and he brings her along. She becomes a believer. This woman then goes back to Turkey where she finds some other students that, have, that are from Muslim backgrounds who have, for the very first time in Turkish history, started gathering together as the beginnings of an indigenous Turkish church. And they're meeting on the grounds of the Swedish consulate so that the police can't disrupt their meetings. And, but they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the next thing I know, they're asking me to come over and introduce them to the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, I ended up going over there every year, every other year, since 1990. And introduced them to the power of the Spirit. And every time I went, somebody in the meeting came to faith. Every single time. And we saw all kinds of healings and deliverances and so forth. Long story short, right now, we have six vineyard churches in Turkey that started with that little group. Not only that, but then one of them had a brother who came to study in Turkey, and he was converted, and he went back to his home in Azerbaijan, where he started a growing church, one of the fastest growing churches in Baku, in Azerbaijan. On one of the trips, we went to in Turkey, we met a man 
who was ministering to Iranian refugees who speak a language called Farsi. And he then ended up going to another country named Tajikistan, which speaks the same language uh, as they do in Iran, Farsi. And he started a whole bunch of churches in Tajikistan. So the next thing I know, we're going to Tajikistan to help those churches there. And while we were in Tajikistan, one of the women from our church met a young man that was there from Iran. And they fall in love and get married. And they moved back to Iran and started hundreds and hundreds of house churches in Iran. All starting with praying for a guy with a cold. That's what the risk-taking leads to. When you say yes to Jesus, it might be, seem like the simplest little thing, but you never know where it's going to go. And when you say yes to Jesus, exciting things happen. And that's the key to keeping in step with the Spirit for the long haul. Giving it back to him over and over and over again, putting him in full control waiting on him, walking in dependence on him, and then saying yes, taking the risks when they present themselves. Let's stand. I think right now God would like many of you, if not all of you, to give something back to him, to put him in full control. Maybe there's some, some aspect that you've been holding on to you know, your, your things, your career, your family, uh, whatever it might be, I think God would want you to put those things back under his control so that he might do th uh, wonderful things through that. So I want to just suggest that let's just take a minute of silence. And you can do this wherever you are. Take a minute of silence and give something back to God. And if you can, just whisper with your mouth so you're actually like engaging with your own voice. You can just whisper to God, I give you whatever it is. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'll do it again. What you did with the Moravians, may you do it again. Our hearts yearn to be swept out into the flood of grace and the experience of the ocean of your love. We yearn to be in that place where we're so hungry for you, we can't get enough. We yearn to see your wonders in our time, in our, in our community, with our families. Lord, would you stretch out your hand and do it again? That's our prayer. Amen.